Hey there, my name is Matt Nickerson, lead pastor for Kingsway Christian Church. The following content is put together by some people who have different experiences, different expertise than I have. The views you hear expressed in these may or may not represent the elders and Kingsway Christian Church, so don't assume that going in. These are hard subjects that we believe God cares about deeply, and that's why we wanted to have a further conversation about these subjects. However, there are some terms or some concepts and ideas discussed in here that really aren't appropriate for little ones. So we recommend that you don't have your kids present in the room while you're going through this content. May God use this to encourage you, challenge you, and deepen you in your faith. God bless. You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. First, why don't we go around the room and just everybody introduce yourself. Tell us that we'll start on my left or we'll just go all the way around. Tell us who you are, what church you work at, and that kind of thing. Yeah, my name is Rashad Cunningham. I'm the pastor at Church on the Rock in Brownsburg, Indiana. That's who I am. My name is Scott McDowell. I pastor City View Church here in Avon, Indiana. My name is Tim Parsons, and I am the lead pastor at the Journey Church in Avon. I am H. Norrell Taylor III, and I pastor New Living Bible Church here in Claremont, Indiana. The reason we all chuckled when he said that is we just found out the H stood for Herbert. Herbert. You didn't want to say that, did you? <laughs> yeah, we telling secrets. <laughs> Love you, man. All right. As we're getting into this video, the hope for this video, for anybody watching online, is we're just a pastors. We all love Jesus in our community. We all love each other in our community. And we believe that racism is an issue that our country and our community has to deal with. So we want to get together, talk about it. People who are watching right now, we just want to say you may or may not agree with everything you hear today. That's okay. We may or may not agree with everything everybody else says here today. Part of, of being in America is growing by the processing of ideas. And our, our hope is to lead people to Jesus. We'll talk about these things. So first question I'm asking and I want to ask this question. I realize this could get real vulnerable real fast is because uh, I want people who watch this video to understand some of what you have experienced as a godly man and a benefit to our community. Can you share a story or two how you have experienced racism here in this community? And if you don't mind, I'll start on my right. And we'll go around this way this time. Is that OK? Yeah, that's cool. Well, I think I moved to Avon um, in, in 2007 uh, while riding down the street. I regrettably uh, cut off a young man uh, in a pickup truck. Uh, He pulled up beside me and yelled the N-word. It brought back memories because in high school, in 1991, I wrestled for Ben Davis High School, and it was an Avon Super 6. And so I wrestled um, at Avon High School, and I was demolishing a kid. It was just disrespectful. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, his his dad um, from the stands yelled out the N-word. The funny thing about it is, even in 1991, um, it didn't even register. I, I don't know what it was, um, but even hearing that, it didn't matter. It didn't register. It was it was normal for me. Um, and because I think... Um, Another instance in 1991, too, uh, real quick, but um, I was I lived in right outside of Speedway in Avon. I mean, not Avon, uh, Hallville, uh, right outside of Speedway. And um, I attended Ben Davis High School. But in order to get to Ben Davis, we had to go, like Jesus, 
uh, you wouldn't go through Samaria. Samaritan. <laughs> <laughs> you would you would go around. <laughs> so black folk were not allowed to go through Speedway. This was in 1991. So this is this is not too far away. You know, 25 years maybe. Uh, and so uh, I remember I had to go through Speedway because I was running late for practice. And so I went through Speedway and got pulled over by a white cop. And he looked at me and said, um, why are you in Speedway? Uh, don't ever let me catch you in Speedway again. I left there, went to a practice, and looked at my two white coaches and um, – in that moment, I realized that even in that experience, I still didn't look at white folk differently because of that. I, I didn't say, you know, I didn't hate white people, if you will. Um, I knew that was just an individual thing because I had white heroes that were leading me and helping me be great at Ben Davis High School. My wrestling coach, Tony Starks, not Iron Man. I just realized that's his name. <laughs> yeah, Scott told me that. I'll tell Scott that story. Scott said, I said, Tony Starks. He said, you got Iron Man as your coach. I said, dang, that is his name. It's crazy. So, yeah, yeah. So those are, those are three experiences I can remember off the cuff. There's been many more. Um, but you become desensitized as a black man uh, in America uh, to these particular uh, situations. I ask you a question that we didn't we didn't prepare for. If you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, Narelle. But can you tell me why the N word hurt so bad? Um, I think the historicity of it, um, the, the the terminology was not nigga like um, you do. Um, Hip hop artists have redeemed that, and black culture has redeemed it too. You you considered my nigga, right? Which is still derogatory in many many levels, but it's been redeemed by rap, rap hip-hop artists and things of that nature, and then even black culture. Uh, but the term nick, nigger um, is, is a term that, that speaks of a lack of intelligence. Um, it, it snatches the dignity of a black person, African-American person. Uh, it is to put you in your place um, with, a, with a word that constantly reminds you that you lack dignity in a nation dominated by white people. And so with that word, racism um, um, moves um, swiftly uh, through a, from a brainwashing standpoint the, that you are a boy, you are a nigger, um, and you, you, are, you are a man with dignity and intellect, um, but you're constantly fighting for white approval, and that word um, puts you in your place uh, to them, and you have to you have to disconnect from that as a as a black man in America, and rightfully define yourself, uh, even in that moment every time. And so it's a moment of disconnect, and that's why it doesn't bother because you disconnect from it and realize they're they're ignorant, uh, they're 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 racist, um, and and that's so it's not okay. But you're saying I know who I am. Uh, that's what the gospel does too. It gives you identity. Tim, do you want to go ahead and share your initial yeah, question? Yeah, if I can, though. I want to I just say one thing uh, off of what Norell just said, if I could. Um, you know, and I, I just want to speak to any of my white brothers or sisters that are listening and watching right now. Um, it is never okay for us to say the N-word, period. I don't care if you're quoting somebody. I don't care if you're best of friends with somebody. 
it is never okay to say the N-word as a white person. And and I think that, I think personally that things could be a lot better off if more understood that and more white people understood that. And uh, because in my experience, uh, to, to answer specifically your question, um, you know, I'm not going to get into details of this because it's not this community, but I, as a white man married to a black woman, oftentimes I interact with white people who don't know that I'm married to a black woman. And so they feel liberty to say certain things to me that they wouldn't say if they knew. And, um, and one of those things is the N word. And, um, and, and so, uh, I've had, I've had coworkers trying to justify to me the use of the N word in certain scenarios. And so, um, so anyway, it's not a word. To, it's not a word to use. How have you handled that in those situations? Well, it dep- depends on the situation. Um, uh, the ones, the, the people that I have, you know, relationship with, uh, I'm able to have a conversation with them um, and, and explain to them why, um, why it's not okay, why it's personal for me. Um, you know, I can't feel what Norrell feels when he hears that word, but, but, but I can feel what it feels like to be the husband and a father of, of a black woman and black children. And, um, and, and so how that personally impacts my life. Um, and then, and then furthering the thought, you know, as a Christian, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't call people names. We don't degrade people. We don't, um, put people, put labels on people that, that other than, other than human. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah. Being very specific, um, I've struggled with this as a pastor for years. If somebody says an inappropriate joke or something in front of me, how firm in my rebuke. Somebody uh, recently said to me a very wildly inappropriate phrase about this subject. And uh, I waited. I let the conversation go on for about 15 minutes. And then I get back and I said, look, you know, I love you as a brother. But what you said earlier needs to never come out of your mouth again. Do you understand me? Yeah, I know. I was just trying to. I understand why you said it. It's wildly inappropriate, and I don't know we're going to hear it again. Are we good? Are we good? Got it. How firm in that moment do you suggest, and anybody can speak to this, how firm do you be? How harsh? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, that is that is the the balancing act of all of this, right? Because, um, you know, we, we need to address uh, address these atrocious things, um, but, but we also want to bring people along in the journey from ignorance to knowledge, uh, and from hate to love. And, and so that is, that is the balancing act. And, and, um, and so I think that, you know, one, one of the things I, one of the things I think of immediately is, and I, and I picked this up from, from a former, um, a former pastor that I worked with, but, uh, one of the things I do when I hire new staff and when I came onto my church in the first place is I give them a, um, um, kind of a, a an outline of who I am and what I expect. And one of those things is I do not tolerate racist or sexist, bigoted jokes of any kind. And so I, t- I tell people up front that. And, and so but back to your question, though, you know, when it happens, I'd like to think that I would address it directly and right away. But, but I also have been there where sometimes it's uncomfortable. And, and so finding the right words and, and not, not ruining a relationship over it can be, can be tricky ground to be on. And so... Uh, I don't. I don't want to speak, and, and the rest of you guys can 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 step in here. But but I don't. I don't. Number one, I'm I'm learning. I'm growing in all of this. I think we all would say that we are in this. And so um, you know, I, I was just leading my staff through a, a, a 
a lesson on on gossip yesterday. And so, you know, they're they're coming back with questions. But what about when somebody brings me this and it's a prayer request? And like, how do I handle that? And I, you know, but admittedly, though, I say, you know, those are tough, though. Those are tough because you'd like to believe that somebody wants you to pray for them. The reality is it's probably not really a prayer request or not just a prayer request. And so um, so navigating those things can be tough is all I'm trying to say. So. Myself, um, I uh, I'm pretty firm. Because it's it's a two way street. So, for example, um, f the police is a uh, in some of the circles I'm in, being in the studio, being with other you know hip hop artists and whatnot. Like that's a that's a slogan, that's an attitude. But I put I, I uh, pastor police officers and their wives, and so you can't say that around me because I'm the one that's crying and praying with the police officer's wife because she's like, I don't know if my husband's going to make it home because of this mentality, right? But then I say to that police officer that I pastor or to the friends I have that are in law enforcement, like when you're in the um, police station and they're making jokes about black people, the same way I stand up for you in the studio where I've been kicked out of circles, kicked out of friendships, kicked out of family events, Will you do the same for me? So I'm, I'm firm all the way across the board. It's not just for when it comes to the N-word or any of that, but even when it comes to F the police or all white people or the devil or whatnot, like my wife's white, so I stand up for that. You can't say that around me. But then I look at the white brother or sister, or I look at the police officer or the fire, and I'm like, you can't have this language and be okay with it in the fire station, I mean, in the fire station or in the police station. And sometimes I get the response, well, you don't understand. If if I stand up for that, then they're not going to feel comfortable with me in the car. Or if I go report that, then they're going to kind of sabotage my job. This is how, and I'm like, mm-mm. I've lost family members sticking up for police officers. This is the Bible part where because of me, you know, father will go against son. And like, you see Jesus say, when you stand with me, people are going to go against you. And so, if, if wrong is wrong across the board, then there can't be an excuse of, well, you know how police officers are. And no, I don't. You know, there's no boys to be boys. There's no locker room talk. It has to be across the board. Or this is where we get to the places that we're at now, where um, there's, there's some blacks who have given white people a pass to say the N-word. But then they say the N-word around another group of black people. And it's like, nah, bro, that don't fly over here. So it has to be across the board. So I'm, me, myself, I'm very firm across the board. Like you, there are no nigger jokes. There are no, my grandfather used to say this and they would nod. And, and my wife is white. So we've been kicked out of family, um, or not, I ain't gonna say kicked out, but we, we've been removed in a sense. We're not invited to so many things because my wife stands up like, hey, my husband is black. My daughter is black, since she's biracial. And so therefore, you can't say these jokes. And when I was 12 and 13 and 14, perhaps I didn't know this was wrong, but it's wrong. And if we're not invited back, so we've lost family over this. And we got people in our lives who are scared to lose friends and coworkers um, who are more, who are more, you know, concerned with their quality of life than standing up for what's right. And so like, like that's defeating. It's, it's a losing battle at that point because you want me to stick up for those who won't listen to you, but you won't stick up with those who won't listen to me. So that's how, that's where I'm at with that. There's so much to say, but I'll come back to the original question. Scott, you want to share a story? Man, I'm, 
I'm in a place where I'm just I'm learning. So most most of the racism that I have seen, I can't say that I've personally experienced. My children are young enough that most of the things that they've experienced are just little kids being little kids and stuff like that. Um, but I have I have friends who I mean I hear stories who I'm sitting down with and I'm saying, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what conversations should I be having with my kids mm-hmm. now in anticipation of the reality that you've experienced. Um, and so th- those are, those are the kinds of things that, that I'm wading through in my own life and thinking through, I've experienced it through my relationships with friends mm-hmm. and, and, and dreadfully anticipating what my children will encounter. So uh, our situation, my wife is white. We're an adoptive family and both of our children are black. Um, and so, yeah, uh, sadly, just prayerfully anticipating what challenges are they going to face and what conversations do we need to have proactively versus conversations we have reactively. And and just the other day, riding in the car on our way to soccer practice, my eight-year-old and I are talking, and she said, Daddy, you know how you told me that if anybody ever um, spoke negatively about me based on the color of my skin, I should come and talk to you about it. And I said, yeah. And so we talked about a situation that, that she experienced at eight, um, and it's heartbreaking. She's eight. She's eight. Um, so what, what happened, Scott? You don't uh, mind, if you don't mind sharing, I'm interested to see at eight years old how you could still come into that tender age of innocence and still experience what, yes. we're, what we're claiming doesn't exist. So it's coming from my eight-year-old, and I don't know to what extent, like – it's coming from my eight-year-old, and we had just had this conversation. But she said that she was standing in line at the grocery store, and this lady standing behind her uh, looked at her and just said, brown skin, and shook her head at her. And I said, well, how did, how did that make you feel? And she was like, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't really get it. Um, and so we took it back to, to your point, like, what is your identity rooted and grounded in? It's not rooted and grounded in the opinions of people. What's your identity rooted and grounded in? My identity is rooted and grounded in Jesus. And what does Jesus say about you? Um, but it breaks my heart, and it makes me angry. My, my oldest is um, from Taiwan, and so it's a different scenario, but we've taught him his whole life about his skin is beautiful. His skin tone is beautiful. Um, God made a variety of beetles and birds and colors of skin and body shapes and sizes. Some are tall, some are short. It's just the beauty of the creativity of God. And so we're talking about it all the time, trying to help him understand from the time he's just little. And we're at this church camp and uh, this um, really dark skinned teenager walks by and my son goes, mommy, look at his skin. And what he means is how beautiful it is because we talk about it all the time. Oh boy, this guy, probably 16 year old teenager in Ohio. He did not think that's what we meant. He turned around ready to fight with a five-year-old at the time. And my wife had to jump up and say, no, 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 you don't understand. (laughs) It's the exact opposite of what you're thinking. And then she had to go over saying, and then help him understand it. But it was really cool. By the end of the week, kind of, took my little guy under his wing and they were laughing a joke and playing. But man, I thought that that moment showed me man, his whole life, his skin is not the pointed out as beautiful 
as one of the creative things of God. Instead, his skin is the point out is what separates him from what is normal or good or whatever. I don't know his history. So anyway, I got to give you wisdom. Well, and it's the little things in the eyes of an eight-year-old. I mean, so most of the Disney princesses are all white with blonde hair. And most of the, like a lot of things are just geared around those, those ideas. And so, you know, at, at Halloween, you know, she, she's looking around and she's going, man, I wish I had white skin and blonde hair so I could be princess Elsa or whatever. Um, and so, I, but in a, in a funny way, in a good, it was, it was fascinating to me at just how young those things began to, like she began to recognize those things. And I think what happens is when the dominant culture identifies something different about the minority culture, it becomes uh, ostracized in some way and, and abnormal in some way. And, and, and I'm just sitting here thinking about my oldest son who has very curly hair. And, and one of the things that he deals with and has dealt with for years is people always want to touch his hair. And he's like, Dad, why do, why do everybody want to touch my hair? And he's in, a, he's, in a, he's in a white school, predominantly white school, a white culture, and, and, and he just he cannot understand it. And he's had moments where he's like, Dad, I wish my hair was like yours so people stop touching it. And I can tell you about a moment that just happened last year where we were sitting in a, in a um in a restaurant with some friends and there was a football game on and they showed one of the black players and somebody that was in our group said, look at his hair. It looks like a bird's nest. And everybody just started laughing. And my poor son, I remember I looked right at him and he had that nervous laughter. Like I don't want to laugh, but everybody else is laughing. And so I need to follow suit. And so those are the moments, especially as a parent, where this whole topic becomes very real. Those are things I didn't deal with growing up. Those are things that I've never, you know, had to interact with. Now, my wife, she can connect with all of that. She's like, yep, that happened to me my, all, my whole life. And, uh, and, and so, you know, when, when we talk about racism, um, you know, there are, I think we call them microaggressions now, that, that include what I'm describing there that continue to, you know, put a hand on the minority culture to keep them from embracing how they're made and who they are and, and continuing to put the label of your hair is different than mine. And so you must be less than let me touch you like you're a animal in the zoo or, you know, some, wow. something like that. Rashad, what about you? I know this isn't easy. Man. Yeah, it's getting harder. <clears throat> I, uh, I played ball in Hallville at Municipal Gardens. Um, I played rec league ball at Municipal Gardens in Hallville, and there's a there's a the old um, Hendricks County Sheriff Jim Query um, came and scouted me to uh, play for the Hendricks County Hoopsters, and like Avon and Brownsburg was like another world because I was you know from like 40th and Boulevard or whatnot, and so um, we played AAU ball and. There's all kinds of stories that come with that, but ultimately it led to us moving to Brownsburg, Indiana, just my mom seeing a better opportunity, better schools, and why not? Uh, when we got to the school, second semester of my freshman year, the, the administrator uh, at the time uh, asked my mom, hey, you live close enough to Raceway Road that we could call Pike and arrange for your son to go there <clears throat> because he's not going to be welcomed out here. And um, I'm 14, man, like, I'm, 
I'm already dealing with all kinds of identity stuff because we moved to Brownsburg and all my boys is clowning me because we out there with the white folks. You know what I mean? Um, but um, there was just a reality to it. Like I looked at my mom and was like, why don't we like I'd rather go to Pike. Like I have friends from North Central, from West Lane, from like I'd rather go to Pike. There's black people at Pike. There's no black people out here. My mom's like, somebody has to do it. And, um, you know, the principal was kind of baffled. Like, you sure you want to go through what's going to come? Like, it wasn't we'll make changes to to make this easier for you and your family. It was this is just what's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. And so my entire high school career was exactly that, but with no with no other black people to identify with of people making the the nigger jokes and the jungle bunny jokes and the coon jokes and the spade jokes. And, and if you don't laugh, then, you know, you're, you're 14. So you're not as strong as I am now. Like, you're like, I still want to kind of have a friend or two around. So you're laughing with them. And, and when you bring it up later, it's like, well, you didn't say nothing then. So you're just trying to cause controversy. Um, and that went on for like, my entire high school career and, and the things that they, they say, like we was reading um, Huckleberry Finn, you know, and all the white kids is making like, like asking questions about the nigger part, you know, uh, when it's used in the book or, um, you know, to kill a mockingbird, the nigger part when it's used in the book, because they can make jokes while I'm in there. And I'm telling the teacher, like they, they doing that just to, to get at me. But then when I get, when, when I get into a fight at school, over somebody saying something about me, it's the fact that I use my hands versus words in return, and I should know better, and I sh I need to restrain myself regardless. And then there was just like that was just high school, and, and you know you graduate and you live in this community that was when I was there there was no other blacks right, and it's grown since. Don't get me wrong, but um, like my wife was called a nigger lover, what? just a, five years ago in Pittsburgh, you know, like this is, and, and like Pastor Taylor said, man, like you get to a place where other blacks are kind of shocked because I have been desensitized, you know? Um, some, sometimes you do just fall into a place where you just kind of feel like you just have to suck it up and just keep moving because because they've been talking to me like this for 24 years. And then when you bring it up, even as a pastor, it's shut up and preach. It's shut up and just teach the gospel. You know, um, you know who you are in Christ, regardless of what's being said around you. You know who you are in Christ. You know the word of God. You should, you should be cool. And it's like, man, this has been my reality for so many years. And now that people are standing up, um, I'm being told like it's it's just drama and it's just divisive. And I'm like you, like a lot of these cats was people who was in school with me making the jokes that now are are just why didn't you say something back then? I was 14, man. Huh? I got moved out of a predominantly black school and brought to an all white school. I didn't know how to adapt. I didn't know how to navigate that. And I was scared. I was just flat out scared. So I was everybody's friend. I was the cool black dude. And the stuff that was said, what you mean to make the basketball team? You're black. Wow. What you mean don't run fast? You're black. You know? And like. And, and I understand you there, Rashad. Like then you're made to not feel good enough because you're black. 
but you didn't do what black people ought to do. You aren't as good as a black person and you're black. So you can't win. And so at some point, man, like you become everybody's excuse that they're not racist and you become other black people's enemies because what they do is they point to you. Well, my one black friend, Rashad, my one black pastor friend, Rashad, he, see, I'm navigating something with an all white congregation. I have to navigate this in a way where I'm not being biased and I'm being gospel, but I'm still presenting it. But I get put on this pedestal by white people to put against other black people who are a little bit more vocal than me to say, why aren't you more like him? And so blacks get mad at me. I wouldn't blame them because I'm being, I'm being used in that way, you know, and it's the same thing that they've been doing to me since I first moved out here. And I'm, and I'm just trying to make, I'm just trying to, you know, be a bridge builder, all this stuff that I've been taught. But man, it's, it's getting to the point that like, when I step out for a second and say, look, can, can I just be honest for a second? Let me put this to the side and just, this is my reality. Then it's, it's, a, it's a shut up type thing. It's a divisive type thing. Then it's a, um, you're, being, you're talking too much about politics. And you, you see what I'm saying? And so um, I've, ex I've been experiencing racism in this community for 24 years. The community's gotten better. I won't lie because more blacks have, have moved out here and live amongst, more minorities have moved out here and live amongst us, but to, this community acts like we don't have a problem. But it's less than, a, if a generation is considered 30 years, it's less than a generation ago that I was the only black in Brownsburg, the only black family in Brownsburg. And even less than two generations ago, we was a sundown town. Get out before sun. I was going to say, some people may not know what a sundown town means, so you kind of explained it there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a sign, um, and, and if there's anybody in your congregation or anything that knows about Brownsburg, there was a literal sign in Brownsburg back in the 70s, that's not, that's not long ago, that, that blacks need to be out of here by 7 p.m., by sundown, or, or else. Um, when I got there, the stories we heard of how the black family that was there before us was burned out of town, you know? And when my mama raised up issues in a school newspaper about how there wasn't baby dolls for my sisters that they could relate to, or there wasn't black hair care products, why we got to drive all the way to 56 and Lafayette Road to go get hair care products when we live in Brownsburg. And there's more blacks that had moved out there by that time. She was called controversial in the, in the angry black woman. Cause she's like, we shouldn't have to like, you guys should make an accommodation. And it's like, well, you moved out here. You see what I'm saying? And so you, you experience these things and you're, you're constantly looking at moms. First I was mad at my mama. Like, why are you making us go through this? But now I, I see more and more, like I wouldn't be who I am today without the experiences. And yet I, I'm, I'm mad at myself in some ways. Cause I'm like, I wish I never just settled of just trying to assimilate. But I feel like that's what I've been doing my whole life is trying to assimilate. My mama named me Rashad Allen James Cunningham, gave me the Allen James so that when that resume gets turned in and Rashad's a black name, um, just put Allen James and resubmit it. And it works. It works. And so like, it's, it's, 
it is getting to a place where like you're just tired, man. You're just like, I, I'm just trying to get by. You know what I mean? That's sometimes that's how it feels, and and you can't do that. But oh man, like it, it's that heavy. It's that heavy where you're like, you know what? Forget it. Let it be what it is, and I'm just gonna do my best to get by. And make and and change the little small part of my world. Like these conversations, these are hard, man. By the time I was doing fine, but by the time you get here and you hear about the other stuff, you like, man, I don't like, I don't even know what I'm doing here, you know. But, but it, it creates a level of hopelessness. But yeah, it's a level of hopelessness. Unpack that, Narelle. Yeah, it's no matter what, man. You you feel a level of hopelessness because it's it's uh, it's still at a level now um, in our in our in America. That is just be happy that now you're not redlined. Um, you're you're able to live in Avon now. You're able to live in Brownsburg now, right? Don't be happy now. Uh, and so, but it's still a level of hopelessness because you still at an eight year old child. You still you still seeing it, and it's still denied. Racism is still denied. It's it's not real, uh, and it's it's like right in front of your face. And, and people are telling you that they've experienced it individually. And then you see the data supported as a group of people, brown and black people, are treated like trash. It, it's just right there. And then you're saying this to people who's, who are supposed to be born again. That's the perplexing piece. That's, that's what bothers me because the, the history behind Christianity and this is yet to be United States, as Maya Angelou said, uh, yet to be united. Um, you you see this, that, I mean, it, it's just, man. I, That's it. It's, it's, it's the church part. The, the world doesn't confuse me, man. Like, what's going on in the world, I expect it. I read the Bible. Like, I, I get the lost acting like lost people. When the church, when the church is not compassionate, man, I tell people, even if you don't agree wholeheartedly with my stance, this is your brother in Christ. Or if you're an older white woman, I'm your son in Christ who's telling you, I'm scared. I need, I need compassion. Even if you don't agree, if you just don't see it my way or if you have statistics to nullify my experience or whatever, I'm just telling you as a brother in Christ, as a son in Christ, I'm hurt. I'm scared. I, I just, I just need to know that you care. And Christians aren't even willing to just say, you know what? Even though I don't agree with you on everything and all your views, I want you to know I'm here and I'm willing to listen to your experience. As a pastor, white people come to me and say, you know, there's a possibility I could, my my son could be, or my my unborn child could be mentally disabled. In that moment, as a as a Christian, not a black Christian, white Christian, as a Christian, I don't say, well, statistics show I have compassion for them. When with all the COVID stuff, people are scared of COVID, won't come to church, won't whatever, whatever, and they call me and they have these fears. I don't say, well, statistically, you realize there's only a XYZ percentage. But when I say, hey, black people are dying at an alarming rate. And this thing right here, that could have been me or that one right there. That could have been my, well, let's wait and see the reason why, or let's, or statistically, you know, the odds of you being shot. And I'm like, are you, are you not hearing my 
experiences, my fears, my concerns, because because you feel some type of way, right? And so I, that's that's where I'm losing it. That that's where I'm starting to like really feel the hopelessness is that in the church, in the church, in the in the place where I am the most vulnerable, in places where the Bible says you as a believer are closer to me than my own non-believing biological blood. They don't hear me. They, I'm, I'm not. They don't even hear me. Like it's not even a tabled conversation. It's shut up. You're being divisive. Preach the gospel as if it's not a part of the gospel. And hey, I, yeah, I had a and I, and I had an instance, um, you know, a, a situation too that I mean, somebody I love dearly in our church, um, and and we were texting, and I remember saying. We can't. I really can't talk right now because I'm grieving over the loss of another black unarmed man. They hit me back and said, um, "I, I mean, I don't know how you can grieve over somebody you don't know." <laughs> so I'm just. I, I I was befuddled, and this is so. So you're thinking about the gospel. Is you know I keep hearing people just preach the gospel, and we'll get to this. But you know just preach the gospel, and I'm like, what's the implications of somebody being born again Christian first, then black, white, Hispanic, or whatever Christian first, and that should that should should make folk who are born again champion the least, the lonely, and left out. That that's just my rationale, and and so. I don't get how you can look at the least the lonely and left out and say that's not a reality with the data, with the data truly being there to support systemic stuff in a country to alienate, segregate and snatch the dignity of of a people group, not just individually. You got individual stories, but you got a people group that is being statistically that was told to pull up their, their themselves by their bootstraps, as Martin Luther King said, but they did, they were bootless, right? No land, no money, no nothing, but get out there and, and do it behind, behind, you know. And so I'm thinking Christians, if anybody on the planet, and that, that creates the hopelessness that you're saying, man, is this Bible, is this Bible really transforming people? Or are my white brothers and sisters so demonic and so hateful that they can't even the, the gospel can't even penetrate them willing to sacrifice economics and friends like you 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 you're willing to allow systemic demonic evil and you born again to keep your friends to keep family members who who treat your brother and sister like trash and we supposed to be in heaven together we're going to be in heaven and some of them who ain't accepted Christ ain't and 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 you allow them to treat me black and brown people like trash in this country systemically and you don't cheer for that you 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 just happy not to be a racist quote unquote there's no such thing either you are anti-racist or you're racist there's no such thing as a non-racist you 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 cannot sit in that space you as a christian you have to be anti-racist you have to fight for the least, the lonely, and left out. That's Matthew 25 alive all day. I don't know uh, who the least and lonely left out is in America. 
Can somebody help me with that? The least lonely left out ones in prison. You visited me statistically. We make up we only 17, 13 percent of the population, I believe. But we make up over 50, 60 percent of the prison systems, which is modern day slavery. I mean, how do you look at that and, and say this is not systemic? I, I don't get that. I um I don't know that this is a good comparison. So give me some grace here, John. But when I was a teenager, I remember going to a party and I was in this place where God was trying to kind of leading me into a right relationship with him. I'd already given my life to the Lord, but I was dabbling in a whole bunch of stuff I wasn't supposed to. And uh, all my youth group buddies <clears throat> decided to go to this party. And I was at the party and everybody started drinking. People started getting in trouble, messing around. And I remember I went over, sat on these steps and I'm watching all this unfold. And, I, and my, the spirit is just saying, you got to get out of here. You can't be here. This is not what I'm calling you to. It's time to leave. And I remember it was the hardest thing I ever did because I left. I tried to take some of my youth group friends with me, church going, committed their lives to Christ. I was there and they gave their life to Jesus. I was there and they got baptized. I was there at the retreat where they were crying and weeping and repenting and all this stuff. I'm like, come on, guys, let's go, blah, blah, blah. And they wouldn't go. And I remember this critical moment where it's like, I'm leaving this party, but I'm leaving something bigger by leaving this party. I'm leaving my friends who will not leave this party. And um, it was the hardest, most lonely thing I ever did. It was Friday night, and I drove 20 minutes home by myself. I'd explain to my parents why, why I'm coming home at 9 o'clock on a Friday night when I'm supposed to be out with my friends. And uh, I never told my parents all the details. Uh, but I remember that was the beginning of the end of many of those friendships. Not because they were mad I left the party, but because that was the beginning of me saying, I can't associate with people who are living a, diabolically opposed to the gospel, but saying that they are one with Christ. Um, and it's not that teenagers don't go through this, but I can say to this day, there's about one of those people who've since returned to the Lord. The rest of them are not walking with them. They are openly atheist and against him. And I think that that same analogy, why are we so afraid to look at evil and say this is evil? Like, why are we so afraid? And when it comes to ra- why are we afraid to say racism is racism and it's evil? And it's and it's fed by a diabolical force and it's not okay. Why are we afraid to walk away from that? I don't understand. Uh, I, I, y'all can answer, but I, I was talking to um, a, a psychologist, I believe, and he used the term uh, cognitive cognitive dissidence. Dissidence, yeah. And it's it's you know really in short, your beliefs are challenged by what's true, and it's creating such an emotional pool that you you can't your your defense mechanisms. It could be right in front of you, and you have to have to denounce it in order to function emotionally. And so that's what uh, my white brothers and sisters are struggling with. I mean, you've been brainwashed through through your whole whole life that everything white is right. So I, that's the grace I give to my white brothers and sisters. You, you Everything you've been taught. I, I mean, I could watch, I remember growing up watching The Outsiders. And I didn't realize till last year there wasn't a black person in the movie. I didn't even realize that. How How did I not realize that? I'm just saying. See, I'm just saying, it wasn't a black person in the whole movie. I wanted to be Pony Boy. I was all the hero, you know, like you, like you do. So you you never saw yourself in that. It's white, everything. Santa Claus, white. Um, Jesus, white. Just everything. Just a complete lie. But can we just touch on that for a second? <laughs> I don't know what exact color Jesus was, but can we all agree Jesus wasn't white? <laughs> yeah, he most definitely a Palestinian Jew that went in Egypt. The Bible, the, the crazy thing is the data, the Bible, 
you know, the history of it, it shows you that, you know, when he was two, he went to Egypt. And you're looking at that, there's no way a, a lily white, blue eyed, blonde haired, white baby could hang out in Egypt and hide. There, there's no way. You would, he would stand out like a sore thumb. So just the Bible itself and then the, the history in, in archaeology stuff just shows you that he had to be a man of color. And so the problem, I think, is it's because white America has created uh, white and black um, to segregate the people. So now we can't even say it right. Think about it. So Jesus had Jesus probably wasn't black. What black is not a thing. He was a Jew. We, he would he, he was a man of color. Right. And so you can't disconnect that. He's either white or black. Like he was in black. You know, you tell him black folk, Jesus ain't black. They run into that. No, he's a Jew. He's a he was a colored man. Can he be Jewish and a colored man and be OK? Uh, and that's what he was. But in, in America, America has put colors on people to denounce them and snatch their dignity. And to make people, and it's crazy because y'all white folk who are in here now, y'all probably more diverse than me and Rashad. If you go back and look at your DNA, you probably Polish, German, you know what I'm saying? And see, that's the crazy disrespectful thing that think about it real quick. Even even y'all white brothers and sisters, you've never identified with who you truly are. You've just said you white because you get privileges with that. Think about it. That's what I'm saying. You you get privileges with being white. Period. You you go back and check your history. You ain't even, you German. You Polish. You Swedish. I got a pastor friend up in Wisconsin. His wife was on the phone speaking in Polish uh, on t to her parents. And I looked over and I was like, I didn't know you was Polish. I mean, she ain't identifying with none of that because she doesn't have to. It'd be better for her just to be white because you get all these privileges in America being white. And so it's just crazy. You know what I'm saying? Just this one culture, this white culture, and then black folk have all this diversity. You see what I'm saying? And it's like, no, no, you, you're German, you're Polish, you're Italian, but in America, you're just white. That's something that my wife has had to deal with um, a lot throughout her years, and, and, you know, we can laugh about it, but I've never had anybody ask me where I'm from. But every time, the first time they meet my wife, oh, where are you from? And her answer is Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never had anybody ask me where I'm from, you know, and, I, and, and, and it's not something I've ever had to deal with, but she has, she's had to deal with that her whole life. I got two quick questions. One is, is that offensive? I like to ask people where they're from. I don't, I mean, when I see somebody of a different nationality, I often ask, Hey, where are you from? You know, where, where should, if they have an accent usually, if they don't, and it's obvious they're from Indiana, I don't ask, but if they come with an accent, I was like, Hey, which part are you from? I'm, just curiosity. Is that offensive? I see you smiling like, yeah, you're clueless. I get it. All right, go ahead. Well, I, I think offensive is a dangerous word. Um, and, and so I don't know that I would label it immediately offensive or, you know, always offensive. Um, but I think there's an underlying assumption that, hey, you're not from here. And so I need to label you in order to relate to you. And so if I know where you're from, then I can begin to build assumptions about your life. And so... Um, the question to ask is, why are you asking where they're from? And, and that will get you to the point where, is, is it offensive for me to ask? And, and, and you know, my, my wife looks Hispanic. And so often people think she's Dominican or Puerto Rican or, or something like that. And, and, um, and, and I think that it's, it's often an attempt to um, create some narrative about her that, especially for her, couldn't be farther from the truth. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't know that I'd be quick to label offensive, but 
but I think the motivation behind asking the question is often um, not the best motivation for us. Yeah, I think, too, um, and if I can chime in with that, I like that because I remember, you know, our church, we, we were, when we first started, because I was programmed that way to think white and black was going to be uh, the multicultural church. I was like, we're going to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. And as long as we got 50% white, black, we good. We're actually successful. But God was saying reach nations. And so to that point, people walk in our, our doors, and I would have to look at them, and I started guessing right. The Lord was just opening up my eyes. I'd be like, you Dominican, right? You from you from Haiti, right? You Nigerian. And it was crazy because even as they're walking in, we're, we're guessing their stuff, and we're asking them. And it was it's because we pushed that, that we wanted to say, listen— we want to celebrate diversity. And so that's why we're asking you. But I remember the awkward moment when I looked and looked at my white folk and I said, for some strange reason, I said, none of y'all white folk are telling me where y'all originally from. And then David, <laughs> David said, I'm, I'm, what do you, where do you say he was from? He had that kilt thing on. Yeah, he was Scottish. Yeah, he said, yeah, he said, I'm Scottish. And so he did a presentation <laughs> when we did celebration. Yeah, he wore his kilt. He wore it on stage. Yeah, he was proud. And, and he, he he stood up and did that. But he was like the first white person in our church to actually identify, identify himself out of whiteness. It was crazy. I was like, yo, that's crazy. But he could still matriculate back into the privilege. But he still he still did that. And I really I appreciated that because I know that people in our church, they know where they originally are from, some of the white folk. But like you said, nobody's ever going to come up. And it was crazy. We never went up to our white folks saying, where you from? It was just somebody of color or Hispanic would come in and then we would do it. And so I found myself only asking people of color, where you from? It was crazy. We're, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. But I wanted to ask one follow-up question before we move on to the next section. Uh, Rashad, you, you made such a profound statement earlier. I was 14. What 14-year-old knows how to handle adult complex issues? Most of the adults don't know how to handle adult complex issues. If you could give wisdom to any kid out there, whatever, 14 or so, who's dealing with something like this, if if you could go back and coach Rashad, the 14-year-old, what would you tell them to say when they're facing racist comments and issues and jokes and statements? What would you say to them? Speak up. Um. Because you'll fall into a trap of always trying to appease. Um, I say it all the time, man, like, just real quick. I know we better take a break. But just going back to segregation, you you separated two people of one human race, right? You put white people here. You put black people here. And so two cultures were formed, a white culture and a black culture, just like there's a Kingsway culture. There's a new living culture, a city view, you know, journey. When you put those cultures back together, the one with the, you know, the dominant culture is going to be the majority of the people, the better education, the better um, economics. And so the the minority culture is always trying to assimilate into that culture. If I'm talking to 14-year-old Rashad, you have to break that cycle of feeling like, um, like your name isn't the right name or... Your style isn't the right style. See, it's so bad. What people say, white privilege, but I'm just, I'm just going to say this: this culture dynamic is so bad that when, um, when even when black people talk, 
if Pastor Taylor uses big words and he's articulate and he's very well spoken, they say, you sound white or you're acting white because he's educated. But if you had the backwards, it'd be weird to see this, but <laughs> if you had the backwards hat, the gold tooth and you sagging and you slaying and not at all, they like, man, why is Matt trying to act black? Or worse, they call you something derogatory. Quit yeah. acting ghetto. Quit acting ghetto. Yeah, they got a word no, for you. A wigger. A wigger. Right. Yeah, they still but, say that. But think about this. They like I'm I'm specifically saying act black. Because even act ghetto, act urban, act from the city, act hip hop. Okay, but no, they say act black. He's acting black. He's acting uneducated. He's acting like he doesn't come from a good home. He's acting like he's, you know, from he's a thug. He's and they call it acting black. But when I'm proper and I I'm booted and suited up and all that, man, he sounds white. And even even black people say this stuff because of because the culture of American culture is that white is right. What what the things that were associated with the white culture are the dominant, you know, standards. And so as a 14-year-old, when you come from being at Tech at, and being at North Central where it's predominantly black and you're just normal, you get out here and the things where you don't fit, you know what I'm saying? Like, you you don't fit, bro. We don't we don't wear those kind of shoes. Those shoes don't matter to us. And, all. and why are you so um, loud? I'm passionate, bro. I've always been, you know what I mean? Like, I, I got 12... Brothers and sisters in the house, I gotta be loud. You know what I mean? You ain't gonna get hurt. Like for real, you ain't gonna get hurt. You ain't gonna eat. And 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 um <laughs> and and then the things like um they listen to a song and then they come back and say, "Man, your head nappy, bro." Like and they just you know I would I would tell Rashad speak up, man. And and especially with the mother I had, I sh I should have known better that she was gonna back me no matter what. You know what I'm saying? But I. You're 14 and you're fighting identity things already and you're wondering if you're too black for the white friends or if you're becoming too white for the black friends and all of that is culture based, man. It's what, and so I, I think one of the biggest problems right now, I, I don't mean to go on this tangent, but is that in, in Christianity in America, we, we have made what's a good Christian basically a a flag standing national anthem glorifying about our military white America is a good Christian to the, to, to, yeah, to the point that when I went to India this year, um, a lady, they have a dot on their head for marriage. And when white missionaries went over there, they said, you can take the dot off and wear a ring. Now you're a Christian. And she's like, but this has nothing to do with my belief in my former belief in Hinduism, where this is, this is who I am. Right. And so like, when, when I heard that over there about how there's some Indian people who don't want to believe in Christianity because they're scared it means they have to become white American. Well, here, the biggest pushback I've had in all of this is, well, how any, any God-fearing Christian would stand for the national anthem. Any God-fearing Christian would. Uh, and I'm like, what does God-fearing and Christian have to do with a song? And this is coming from somebody who we've been in the military. Like we're vet, like, you see what I'm saying? I, I love that. Me personally, I stand personally, but it has, but it has nothing to do with like me being a God fearing Christian. Right. So like I would tell Rashad, man, like this comes back from serving a country that didn't love you. 
I would, I would, That's I would, all it is. Yeah. You just you standing up serving a country from the camaraderie and all that in the military, and you're standing. I can't kneel. For, for our listeners, can you guys? T- I don't know if you're a service record. But I don't know if yours in the Do you mind just telling us so people don't? Yeah, I did nine nine years uh, Army and National Guard. Um, served in Bosnia overseas, Germany. Um, yeah, nine years honorable discharge, disabled vet now. Yeah, so. Um, the funny thing is, man, it doesn't, and I know we got to take a break, but it doesn't bother me. Like, I know it doesn't bother Rashad uh, for, yeah, for somebody to kneel and then explain why they are kneeling. Okay, so so why are you kneeling um, at, at the National Anthem? Uh, and one thing, too, is they're not about to go to war or nothing. They're about to play a, a game at the beginning anyway. So I'm just saying, they're not about to go to war. They they actually playing a game after they seen the thing, right? They're not about to go. So he's he's kneeling and he explains to us why. Um, because America, based off the data, to black and brown people, the least and lonely left out, has not lived up to what we singing about, to what the flag represents. It it, it we're not living up to that. And, and, and further than that, like so, I'm not as decorated as PT. I, I made it through boot camp, did some A school, and then I was out. Like, you know, I, I'm about a year in the Navy, right? I'm not as decorated. I, but but think about this. Like, like, football just started, right? Every player standing in solidarity against racism. Not America, not the flag, and, it, and they're being booed and talked to... Like, like, listen, like, listen to that. Like, this is where I, I get... I get so, like, just... What are you upset about? It, we're standing against racism. Like, they're standing now they're... St- it, 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 Colin Kaepernick sat first um, and got all kinds of flack. He went to a Navy SEAL. The Navy SEAL said, man, that's disrespectful. He said, well, I'm not trying to disrespect the flag. What should I do? You should kneel. Navy Army Ranger, whatever it was, somebody, somebody from the military told him you should kneel. kneel. So he knelt. All right, that's the problem. Okay, now look, here we are years later, and they're standing... During the anthem in solidarity. And it's boo. Why? Because you're doing it during the anthem. What are we doing? You're standing against racism. You're standing now. Go back to the plantation. Hey boy, don't go that far off 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 the you know plantation. Don't don't go that far. Go past that. Hey, uh, you could be sharecroppers now, but you gotta do it through us. Okay, go past that. Hey, black people over here, white people over here. Okay, go past that. Hey, don't kneel. you see how it's always hey, don't say black lives matter. It's all lives matter. Don't use uh, don't say that. Don't it's, it's always this this like do it our way or we're not gonna listen. What is that guy? And I'm talking about once again, Christians. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians. And so in in that piece right there, I'm like when I when I go on that walk and do the 5K for cancer, you know what I mean? On times I could be studying the Bible or preparing my sermon, you ain't got nothing to say. When I'm when I'm over here and I'm with you against abortion, you have nothing to say. When I'm talking about adultery and I'm talking nothing to say. But when I'm like, hey, I support them standing during the anthem in solidarity for against racism. I support them bringing awareness to this. Pastor, you just need to stay away from that one. Or, hey, brother, like I, I respect you and all that, but man, I think you need to leave that one alone. Why? You create like, the I don't. I just don't understand it. You know what I'm saying? Like, is the the flag is starting to mean more than 
the people. Yeah. Our, 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 uh, we have an idolatry of patriotism. And, and like I said, man, like I've been to India and back, and I was like, man, I love America. I do. I love America for real, like flat out. And yeah, and yeah, like flat out. Like I came back, I was like, I, I don't want them problems, right? But but I will never put my patriotism and a flag and an anthem above humanity. And that's what we're doing. You see what I'm saying? So like so so what's happening is that people are no longer listening to me the person. They're listening to me the skin color. Because I'm I tell them. Bro, I stand for the flag. Like, I stand for the, I know the end. Like, I, I get teary-eyed watching all that good stuff. And yet I still agree with those who are kneeling completely. And you, and so now you're against me because of the skin color, because I'm calling out racism, because of all these things. So when I, when I go out my way to get rid of all the things that would create a barrier between my white brother or sister in Christ and you still have a problem with me, at some point I'm like, forget it. Forget it. I've done, I've done it your way. I did everything you asked me, everything you've wanted me to do to meet you halfway, to meet you where you're at, I did it, and you still won't hear me. Come on, man. Before we take a break, um, I've heard Narelle and Rashad speak on the flag issue. I didn't have that in my questions today, but it's out there on the table. So I don't Scott, Tim, do you have any other thoughts on the flag or where you stand on the whole thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I would echo everything, everything that these guys are saying for sure. Uh, I think that um, we have we have politicized so many things uh, and and the top of the list is racism and and, you know, We'll never get to break if I start talking about politics, but um, but 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 we have politicized everything, and 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 that has been, in large measure, the the American church's undoing, and 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 as it relates to all of this, but um, but yeah, I, I would echo everything that they were said, and and and, and you know, uh, Coach Reich of the Colts, you know, uh, I read that he he said he knelt, uh, he was the only one that knelt, all the other you know players and coaches were locked arms, but he was, he knelt because um, he believes that. Uh, the problem with racism in America is a problem that white America needs to solve. It's not up to our black and brown brothers and sisters to solve it. And so that's why he kneeled. Um, and, and, and I would echo that. I think that, you know, it is, it is a problem that, that, that white people need to recognize that we, we need to solve it. Uh, and, and our black and brown brothers and sisters are tired. Uh, They're tired of, of, of feeling alone. They're tired of, of, of championing the cause and and what's just like what's already been said, it should be a no-brainer for the Christian church to stand up against racism. Here's the only other thing I'll say about it is that um, when you talk about race, it 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 has an ugliness to it unlike any other topic. And and I have I've had I'm thinking of one instance where I, I you know I was um, I was talking about race. I'll just leave it at that. And and I had somebody come to me and say. You know, you're talking about race and you're being divisive. If you'd stop talking about all of our differences, then we'd get to unity. <laughs> and 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 I immediately responded, well, you know, man, if I was doing a sermon series on the differences between gender, men and women, or if I was if I was doing if I was doing a talk about the differences between generations, that's not being divisive at all. You would you would welcome some help in your marriage or your help in dealing with your aging parents. Yeah, exactly, and 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 so and so we don't we don't we don't say well you're being divisive by talking about our differences in those ways, but when it comes to race, 
you're immediately being divisive when you talk about it. Uh, and and I believe um, personally, um, and, and and I believe it's it's in the Bible that uh, that in order to get to one, we have to recognize there's first two, or there's first three, or there's first four. We we oneness makes no sense without two, three, or four. You're preaching team, and so uh, oh, good offering. I'm about to just. <laughs> What's your cash at? Those are not stealing that out the gate. So yeah, so you know, but but we don't do that with any other top. Like you know, it's just you know with race, it, it, and and I'm not I'm not sure what it is. And and to be honest, uh, let me just say one more thing. You know, I I I just want to be clear. I am on a journey as a white man, and and yeah, you know, my wife and I, praise God, we're going to celebrate 20 years of marriage next month, and that's a beautiful thing. It has been a journey, and 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 you know we have. Had, I'll, I'll share one one very vulnerable moment. You know, my wife and I we were discussing things of race not that long ago, and I was pushing back on the things that she was saying, and she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, "Tim, can you just let me be the expert on being black for once?" And so, you know. I can speak about things very confidently, but really on the inside is I am I am very much on a journey just like every other white person in America in reckoning all of the things that uh, that I've been brought up under and in and 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 taught to believe and and um, and I always tell the story of I'm, I had one moment in my childhood that was a defining moment for me and uh, I, I was on vacation with my family. And my grandfather said the N-word directed at a person that was outside the car. And my dad looked at him and said, we don't say that. My dad could have easily not said anything. Of course, he could have just went along with it and agreed with him. But instead, my dad confronted him in the moment, on the spot. And for me, that was life-changing. And I don't even know that I recognized or realized the impact of that in the moment. But I'm so thankful my dad spoke up because it set a trajectory on my life that we speak up against those things. Scott, I, I want to hear your thoughts about the flag. If you have any, I, I do one of the things I just want to say real quick to Tim, thank you for your humility because um, we need more people on all sides saying, I don't know what I don't know. Will you help me understand why you feel the way you feel? Because it doesn't make sense to me. And I haven't had your experiences. I, I've said this to my, my brothers and sisters who fought in the war or who are policemen who are struggling to listen to the other side and say, help me understand where you're coming from, because I feel like something has created a barrier for you, whether it's your respect to the flag or the country or whatever. And um, I think if we would do a lot more listening, we might be able to find we got things to learn. We got things to learn. But anyway, Scott, do you have any thoughts you want to share on the flag or no? Yeah, I mean, I think – one of the things that that bothers me that I don't understand is why why is it that for me to see a flaw or an issue in something means I can't love that thing? I mean, I I love my wife. I don't think she's perfect. But I don't but I don't think she's perfect. Right. Married by God's grace in a little over 15 years, and Lord willing, 15 more. Maybe, babe, I love you. Um, I'm just saying it on record. But there's there's a lot of things that, man, I genuinely love that are flawed. In fact, I can think of very few things that I genuinely love that are not flawed. 
And I just, I don't understand, I don't understand why it is I'm made to feel like I cannot love my country, but also see that it has flaws to it. Um, man, I'm with you. I, I've had several conversations with people where I'm like, okay, so okay, you don't have to like what Colin Kaepernick did, but have you read like his journey? Like he's, he's tried to raise awareness and bring attention to this issue in a variety of different ways to try and be respectful about it. And again, you don't have to agree with his message, but what, how do you want him to voice his concern? He's trying to use his platform, which is what we teach our kids to do. Like we celebrate Tim Tebow using his platform to speak to his faith. Now, again, I'm not equating Colin Kaepernick and Tim Tebow. I mean, clearly Tim Tebow is the better quarterback, but, uh, Bro, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, he I just wanted to get a rise out of you. Because yeah. yeah, he he's a 49er fan, man. He's a Niner fan. I just figured I'd get a rise out of him. But, but in all seriousness, like, I don't understand. Like, So this man has a platform, and he has a concern, a valid concern uh, of issue that he sees in our country. Why wouldn't we want him to use his platform to voice that concern? And he's tried to voice that concern in a respectful way. And I just, I don't understand. I, I'm struggling with, I mean, I love my country. I've got most of my family members have served in the military. And I, I am thank, I thank God for the country that by his grace, he allowed me to be born in. I didn't do anything to deserve to be born here. I love America. I just struggle with why it is that I can't love my country, but also see flaws that concern me in areas that I want to be a part of being a solution. Like, I just, I don't understand that. I don't understand that confusion or that false dichotomy that exists. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and cut us off, send us a break. There's always more to say. The only thing I would add to that real quickly is I would use, again, we've mentioned pro-life as an issue. Um, I'm, I wish we didn't have so many kids in the foster care system. I wish we didn't have so many abortions happening. Our country has flaws. I still love our country, but I still believe we can do something about it to make it a better place. Like PT was saying, um, just, just, Act six, for example, right? Um, there's there's some oppression taking place in the church in the sense of the Hebrew uh, women are being treated differently than the Gentile women are being treated better, and and they bring this to the leaders of the church because there's a problem, right? And um, e even when Peter responded, it's not I'm just going to preach the gospel. It's no, I'm going to raise up people to do something to change the system. There's a problem with the system. We need to do something to change this system. And that's biblical. Like, like that's there's biblical. There's, that, a there, there, there's, a there's a need. There's a problem with the system. Some people are not being treated equally. So we need to do something to change that. Let's raise up those among you who can put those changes in place. And right? We'll continue, like, to, <laughs> we'll continue to preach the gospel and teach and preach, but we're going to fix this system. We can't just leave these needs. Um, and not only that, but I didn't mean to cut you off, Muriel. But not only that, but they, they raised up names. If I'm not mistaken, they're Grecian names. They're Greek names. Yeah, it was the Greeks. Yeah. Like, you're going to have a better idea how to care for these people, and they're going to make sure you get the care you need. And so we're going to raise them up and give them authority and power to do it. Because if you raise up the ones who's already kind of allowing it to be the way it is, you know what I'm saying? Like, that wouldn't even make sense. So even, like, we're, we're like, the Bible doesn't talk about these things, or the Bible doesn't have, they, yes, it does offer solutions, but what lens are you looking at it with? You know, if you just see that as just a passage for why we need deacons in the church, then you're not you're not seeing it the way I see it. I see it. I'm like, look, there's oppression right there. What did they do? Why can't we do what they did? 
Oh no, that's about deacons, man. Look at the content. Look at the thing. Like, look at it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, why did they need the deacons? What was wrong? There was a point when they didn't have them. <laughs> and then there's a point where they do. Why did they need them? Yeah. They need a new system that's that's oppressing a, a people group. It's yeah. just that simple. But I'm saying that's an African-American oppression piece. But when you're in a position of power, you're not looking at that. And it goes back to what you were, were saying, Matt. Um, it, it's and, and for Rashad and I, who went to predominantly white, colleges and schools, we've always sought white approval. We've always sought assimilation. We've had to, to function. And so if you've been taught the scriptures by a white professor um, that says Elvis Presley was saved and Martin Luther King wasn't saved in your face, <laughs> this is actually what's said. <laughs> like the black folk in the class went crazy. But but <laughs> Elvis Presley was saved and Martin Luther King wasn't? Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. But yeah, so you, so you see it through their lenses, and so you don't see it through the lenses of and the creativity and the experience of and of oppression and and rightfully saying what was really going on here, you know, and looking at it deeply. And that, that's how you can learn and grow outside of what you've just been taught academically. I'm going to build on that with my next question. It's right along the same lines. Why should the church be invested in racial reconciliation? And have you heard or seen or your church is doing anything practical to actually make it happen? I mean, we have to, the church has to do this because this is, this is, this is a Bible issue. It's a gospel issue. Um, Biblical justice. Like I hear the phrase, like, let's not focus on social justice. Let's focus on biblical justice. Well, biblical justice gets played out in society. Um, And so, um, Man, if it's going to begin anywhere, shouldn't it begin in the household of God? Like, shouldn't it begin with people who should be? I mean, we we've got a, a greater unity than 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 exists anywhere else on the planet. Um, I mean, I think Rashad said earlier, like I've got more in common with Rashad, who's a believer in Christ, than I do in my unbelieving cousin or uncle or brother or father or whomever. Um, you know. The, the, so I guess I, my question would be, why wouldn't it begin in the church? Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I don't understand why it wouldn't begin there. If we if we want it to be, if we want it to be informed biblically, like we want racial reconciliation to be informed biblically, right? Like we we want we want Jesus lifted high. We want him the one superintending over because ultimately, like he's the one who reconciles us to himself. Like nobody understands reconciliation better than God does, right? Like he wrote this whole book about how we can be reconciled to him. Then why wouldn't we want why wouldn't we want the church to lead out? Why wouldn't we turn to the scriptures? I, I don't know. I guess I just I, I wrestle with why we wouldn't. You know, uh, of course, uh, the New Testament is is littered with racial reconciliation and ethnic reconciliation. And the entire book of Ephesians, um, you know, we we can't miss the point that it's about being reconciled to God, but it's it's really about being reconciled to each other. And the wall of hostility that's broken down is is not just the wall of hostility between us and God, but it's between Jew and Greek, and it's between different ethnos. And so, uh, and, 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 you know, um, the church at Antioch was, was a diverse church, was a church of many ethnicities doing life together and showing to the world around it the beauty of the gospel. And it's all, it's all found in the prayer that Jesus prays in John 17, that they would be one as we are one. 
again, I'll reiterate myself, <laughs> repeat myself here, there's no one without two. And so why would Jesus pray that prayer if he didn't already know that there's going to be hostility? There's going to need to be reconciliation between people groups. And so so it's it's absolutely a biblical mandate and it's and it's it, it, you know I've heard it put before that it is our best witness of the gospel. Because because when people look at the church and they see a divided church, the yeah, the gospel has no no relevance, no meaning, no power to it. But man, when 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 they look at the church and People are worshiping and walking and working together as one in a unified body. That's something the world can't accomplish. Yeah. And so that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. And so to answer, just to answer your specific question, one of the things that we've, that we've done at my church, a practical thing we've done, is there's a book called, I think it's called Multi-Ethnic Conversations. And, and it is a book workbook uh, that's meant to be done in a small group environment where you Theoretically, you don't have just a group of white people or just a group of black people or a group of Asian people sitting around, but you have a, a diverse group of people sitting around going through this together, and it and it opens up pathways of conversation and understanding. And back to, I, I think it was when we were recording you said this, um, but just the idea of hearing one another and listening to stories, listening to back, just like what we opened up with, telling our story, that, that very real curriculum, if you will, helps people move move that needle forward a little bit faster than just casual. And so in a practical sense, there are resources out there that help to um, uh, get people to open up and be vulnerable to share their story. Um, but I think, and then I'll, then I'll be quiet, uh, but I think I think really what's needed in the church right now is 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 a theological understanding of of all of this that we're talking about. because if 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 there's not a theological understanding of this, then it does become a social justice or a social social gospel, uh, and it's interesting to me as an aside that we put certain things in the category of social justice, but other things we don't, and we put those in a biblical justice category. It just boggles my mind. Um, but we we keep racism out, but we put pro life in the category when pro life, for all intents and purposes, is a social issue. Uh, but yet we say no, that's a biblical issue. Well, racism is too, and so uh, that's just a quick aside. But but yeah, we need a theological understanding, which is very important today. Can I jump a real? Because I'll be real fast. I want to talk very little. On your point, Tim, Narell blew my mind, and this is something I want to say to everybody watching, especially from from my church, because my, I took karate as a kid, and my instructor was Korean, and he used to have this great phrase: um, "Ignorance is curable; stupid is forever." <laughs> and he was he would not let you say huh or what in class like he man you'd be dropping and doing all kinds of push-ups and other kinds of stuff if you ever said that because he said that's just a sign you're stupid if you didn't hear something you'd be humble enough to say i didn't understand you sir can you help me understand he was teaching me from the time i was 12 years old if you don't know you ask and that's okay to say you don't know so to that point i'm sitting first time i think it was first time i've said with narelle i'm just no i don't know anything about you i don't understand our country's blowing up Help me understand what I don't understand. Narelle was like, man, anybody who wants to understand just needs to seek wisdom. I'll help. I'm here. I love you, brother. It was amazing. Then he pointed out John 17. My whole life, I've never thought of John 17 as a black-white issue. That's on me. I understood what Jesus is saying in John 17. It's one of my favorite chapters. I say that every Sunday, John. Whatever chapter I'm in is my favorite <laughs> chapter. <clears throat> but it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. But I've always thought it was about the, the church. It wasn't about Jew and Gentile. It wasn't about black and white. It was about Hispanic and whatever. And Narelle was the one who went, 
what do you think it was about? He didn't think it was about what do you think it was about? Like, man, this just seemed like a their issue back then, not our issue today, but it's our issue today. So Rashad, I'm sorry, you go ahead. So what we're doing as a church is we have people who are, uh, I'm a believer of like network of relationships, right? And similar to that act six, I was like, man, I got, I got my own responsibilities as a pastor, but there are people who are passionate about this that I can raise up and put into those, those places. So we're working with the school system. Uh, Dr. Snap is working with us hand in hand, uh, a committee that's creating policies to present to the school board. Uh, that's already in action. We've been working with uh, Chief Grimes at the Brownsburg Police Department. Uh, police department uh, doing conversations with convos with not just Brownsburg, but multiple um, police departments, you know, in the area. And um, even like working with Al Jeans, who's the uh, first black town manager in Brownsburg uh, to, you know, to, to make some changes from that, from that uh, uh, aspect. But then we have uh, first movers. Uh, Charles Dotson is a, is a black male who completely like understands and agrees with, you know, black lives mattering. And yet first movers is a nonprofit put together to serve military vets and first responders. So we're constantly with the police officers having these difficult conversations constantly with the military, with the vets who don't agree with people kneeling or not standing for the anthem. And yet we're able to have these conversations because we're serving them breakfast first. And then we started this thing called uh, bridge builders, which uh, over the summer we had this big, uh, picnic where we just said, come and let's have some tough conversations. And you'd be surprised how many people didn't like did all this on Facebook. But when it came time to like, Hey, come to the picnic, nobody showed up, you know? And, and so what I've done is I've recognized that, um, I have some individual things I'm allowed to be growing up in Brownsburg. I've learned to navigate some of these conversations um, to a place where I don't have to compromise my views. Cause I've, I've grown in that part but I can, I can still have a thick enough skin to get to the heart of things. So I did this thing called convos where I allowed people from all views to come in and have a one-on-one where you are safe. I'm not going to take this information and blast you, say what you got to say. And you start finding out things like a, a guy came in and said, I hate black people. Like that was how he started. He's like, you still want to talk to me? And I was like, yeah. And he said, why would you want to talk to me? And I said, why? And then he tells you, well, when I was in prison, I was raped for seven years by black people. So when you talk about, you know, oppression and blah, 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 I'm not hearing it because of my experience. I said, okay, I I understand you. Um, What allowed that to happen to you? And he's like, there's not enough CEOs, not enough guards, not enough, you know, cameras ain't in the right places. I said, so there's something wrong with the system. And he's like, yeah. I was like, and if you had an opportunity to fix that system, would you take it? He said, yeah, because I wouldn't want this to happen. I said, that's all I'm saying. And, And so I've built these these little areas where there's language that is creating barriers, right? And so like black lives matter. Some people can't get past that. So I have to tell it in a way where I'm like, okay, I had a 13 year old who uh, died of cancer two years ago. And during that time we got some bracelets made for her and somebody reached out to me and was upset that we never made bracelets for them when they conquered their battle. I said, yeah, but this 13 year old is dying right now. You see how, like, what would it sound like to look at her mom who was so excited about these bracelets being made and say, well, you know what? All cancer matters. I've never said no other lives matter. I'm saying that the life that is hurting right now is black lives, right? And same thing with white privilege. Like, just giving, giving things that explain it 
and pulling apart those language barriers, that's kind of the approach I've taken of saying, okay, if this is where the barrier is, I'll meet you there. I, I stopped wearing my Kaepernick jersey and I preached about how I will put my Kaepernick jersey to the side because I know it offends some of you because I just want to be able to have that conversation. But will you put your flag to the side for me? You see? And that's why I was saying, like, you, no matter how much, it still seems to be something in the church that just is like this one issue is where we won't go. When I got here, and this may not be popular with my church um, or people in the community who've left my church because it wasn't popular then. Um, I'm pro-America. I'm for America. I've said what you guys have said a million times. I love that I'm born and raised here. I've done mission trips to other countries. I don't want to go anywhere else. But I don't pledge allegiance to our flag. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. And um, I know that's hard. Some of the people in my church and some people in our community do not understand that, especially my military brothers and sisters. Um, and Danielle, who's in here today, if you've seen her moving around, she served in the Navy for years, her and her husband both. I love them to death. I would die in a heartbeat for them or their family. I'd die for any of you. If I had to give up my life, I'd do that for you. Uh, but I say that because I, there's this hard thing, and I have to remind the Christians who are watching this, our allegiance, our first allegiance is to Jesus and everything Jesus wants from us, period. Now, I love this country. I will say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I'll sing America's great songs. I'll do that. I love the song, God Bless the USA. I love that song. Um, I do. I want all of that. And if I lived in another country, I'd probably do that there if that were my home country. This is my home country. But my first allegiance is to Christ, not to a flag, not to the ideals of this country. It's to Christ. And anyway, I just feel like you need to say that anyway. For what is worth. Any other practical things? You guys have given us some good stuff you're doing, Rashad. You've given us the book. Anything else you're hearing or your church is doing to try to bridge reconciliation? Well, for me, man, um, in the hopeless area was I thought 10 years ago, this is the reason why um, we started New Living Bible Church. Um, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things became new. And I thought we would have new living, you know, with the Bible in mind as a church. That's what I thought. And so we began to just aggressively reach nations because I believe John 17, um, if we could get people together that were different, thought differently, looked different, um, all kind of stuff, had different backgrounds, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, um, illiterate, biblical, economic differences, gender differences, everything, that this would speak so loudly to the transformational power of the gospel. And so that's practically what we did. And so um, we began to just be stretched and be uncomfortable and be in spaces, having conversations and um, seeking out relationships with people who were in biracial relationships and giving them a safe space and having conversations and that our church is the practical thing that we thought we were shooting in the gym ready for this what's happening now uh and sadly we ain't so so for for me the whole my whole the whole thing of starting this church was a multi-ethnic multi healthy multi-ethnic church that would lean into socioeconomics, would lean into ethnicity, would, would rightly understand that the gospel, um, the, the eangelion is, is there to transform you from being um, barbarian, Greek, Jew, um, whatever, and all are one in Christ. You're still that, but you, you're now one in Christ. And so you don't lose your identity, but you find unity in, in the many 
becoming one in the unity. And I'm like, man, this wouldn't that be crazy? Because even right now, if people are watching this, what, what shocks them and what brings hope is the two black brothers in the room with some white folk, right? This is what speaks loudly in this moment. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You can't get past that. In 2020, you're still looking at some black brothers sitting with some white folk, and you're going to look differently than it would be all white folk sitting here. Because the diversity speaks of unity. Diversity speaks of the power of the gospel. And right now, you know, I'm having conversations with people that are proud to be white before they're Christian. I remember saying this to a sister. I said, um, you having a problem with me saying the word white, right? Yeah, I, said, I can't say white, right? Why, why can't I say white? I mean, you created the term, and why can't I say it? That was just a sidebar. And then I, I asked her, I said, let me ask you a question. Are you Christian first, or are you American, or are you white, or are you Republican, or, or a Trump supporter, or whatever, or Obama supporter? What, what are you first? Because I'm, I'm a Christian first who happens to be black, right, with a lot of the stuff in it. And she said, I'm struggling with that. I, I'm, I'm still struggling with that. Um, I'm, I'm more white than I am Christian. And, and I mean, it's just, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I think the as you talk about the transfer, transformation of God, and, and that's what's bothering me because um, brothers just preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. For what? what? Preach the gospel for what? Like you had gospel, quote, unquote, believing slave masters, you know, who, 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 Thomas Jefferson, for example, raping Sally Hemming, and now we that's a love story. She's 14 years old. It's Stockholm Syndrome. How can a slave be in love with her slave master? And then he denied the children fatherlessness. I mean, this is our history. You say that story. Folk don't even, that's, that's just the past. Let's just forget about it. But the gospel is you should be able to have all those facts and pull all it into reality now and Christ come in and heal and mend and transform because that's what truth is supposed to do. So, but we're running from that because th that truth is ugly. And so, yeah, that's just the little long winded answer. But in a sense, that's what we practically done. Um, and that's created hopelessness for me, you know, it's the only thing I was going to say, um, one of the most powerful things you said to me, when we went, I can't remember it was the first, second time we went out is you said, uh, don't look at me and tell me you don't see color. Why don't you tell me the rest? Tell everybody else the rest of that, because that was so good. Yeah, yeah, it's, and that's just disrespectful, um, because to say you don't see color is a lie, and even just to say the thing, you acknowledging that you see it. You know, it's just a, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I think to say you don't see color as a Christian is 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 your. You, I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say that you you don't treat me differently because of color of my skin. Um, and, and you're trying to say that, that I don't see color, and so I don't treat people, but that's just not reality. You haven't come to a self-realization, um, and that's not helpful for nobody. Um, you're married to a black sister, you're married to a black sister, but you see color. You see the distinctions, you see the difference, you've been taught that, and so God sees color. That's the glorious thing of the gospel. And and so that's not Christian. That's not that's not Bible. The, the Bible is saying, I could see your color, and I have to not judge you. I have to work really hard at that, right? Not to look at you differently because you look different than me. You ain't God. So what you're really saying, God 
doesn't see color. Yeah, he does. He sees color, but he doesn't judge you by it. He doesn't treat you differently because of it. The gospel brings unity and commonality, and God wants us to step into that realm and be able to say, I see you, Rashad, as a black man, black man with history, hurt, hang up, and and I want to step into that and have a conversation and know you culturally. And I'm not going to disrespect you and say, I, I don't see color. That's offensive. That is offensive. You have to see me. You're basically saying you don't see me, and that's the problem because you, you're not seeing me, and, and I need you to see me because I want you to see me for who I am and give me dignity of being a black man in, 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 in America. See me as a black man. Uh, know my history. Give me dignity. Um, give me liberty. <laughs> give, me, give me all the things that the flag say I'm supposed to have and allow me to even protest which is the laws of the land, right? I should be able to protest as a black man, but but I can't. You can you can protest like this, but not like that. And then, okay, you you can protest like that, but but do it like that. And and so no no, I can protest. I can protest as long as I'm doing it in a way that's legal, but not as a black man in America. So. Um, just a couple of quick thoughts about that too. You know, I, I often find that when people say they don't see color, uh, what they're what they're really saying is is that anything that is attributed to your color, I don't appreciate or like or welcome. Mm. And so it's often a, an attempt to whitewash another person in their culture. And and so um, again, it's 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 the motivation behind that. I think I think what you're saying is right, but I also think there's another element of it. Uh, that that you know, whenever your culture, your color comes into play, you're going to be out of line because I don't see color, and so if it's not my way, then it's going to be immediately wrong. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd say is the most practical thing that people can do right now is to intentionally diversify their relationships, mm-hmm. and and you know, it is it is uh, it is is known that uh, we we often associate with people that are just like us, and and so. In order to, to to bridge this this divide that exists, we have to intentionally diversify our relationships because there's no other way I'm going to hear another person unless I'm in relationship with that person. And so it's easy for me to criticize and to be mad at a person that's different than me if I if I'm not in relationship with them. Uh, and, and 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 essentially they just become a label in my life. And then let me just say really quickly, just a just a, I think it's a truth that that we need to wrestle with uh, as as white people. Uh, you know, black and brown people are used to talking about race. White people are not used to talking about race, and and that 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 has um, made it difficult for us to talk about race. Uh, and so, anytime it comes up, you know, at least the black folks I'm aware of, they they talk about race all the time. Why? Because they have to. You know, they talk about race with their kids, and and when they get pulled over, or you know, whatever. It, it, it is it has been a way of life for them to talk about race. But as the as the majority culture, we don't have to talk about it because our race doesn't have. Uh, that impact on us, a negative impact on us, and so, uh, and so, what I'm what I'm trying to encourage my white brothers and sisters to do is to engage people of color about race. They're going to be comfortable talking about it. You may not be comfortable talking about it, but more often than not, and I think you shared with your you know uh, uh, initial conversation with Norrell that they're going to be very comfortable talking about it. it Maybe hard conversation, but they're going to be used to talking about and 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 comfortable talking about it, even though you may not be. And that can be a growing experience for for many people. I want to speak into that a little bit, and I, I think this is something we had talked about a little bit yesterday, but um, with, I agree with Tim all the way, and yet 
I want to make sure everybody who's watching and listening understands that before George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and things of 2020 happened, I knew these brothers. Like I, like they reached out to, they had no reason to get to know me. They inboxed me. Hey man, I see you in the area. You a pastor. Can we grab some lunch? We went to Pramani. I never been to Pramani brothers and, Oh yeah. 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 And and he's the first one that took me to Portillo's like, you know what I mean? Like these brothers, I don't like food, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but these brothers, this kind like, I want to caution with what Tim said with this, like black people are grieving though. Right. Like flat out, like for real. And so there are some people now pastors who will watch this or who have watched these other ones I've done who are now trying to, initiate that conversation at a at a deep level and I'm like this is bro well time out do you even know who I am before you're just trying to immediately go to this depth of a conversation yes I'm comfortable talking with it and yet I'm tired and I'm grieving some of these things as well versus either of them and even yourself from our time at cabin coffee like this is like okay these brothers know me and this isn't an agenda this isn't this is why we had our conversation yesterday and so i just want to caution people to understand that put the work in and that's everybody right not just white but put the work in to diversify your relationships i i'm the one thing i'm thankful for that my mom did was she forced me into it like god was at work because um like my wife is white cuz I cuz I lived in Brownsburg my whole life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, like I this is being real. My wife is white because I grew up in Brownsburg, Indiana in my high school years. That's why my wife is white. This is what I was surrounded by. But it it forces I have a unique opportunity with many different um just a a, a large diversity of relationships, but I put the time in before the controversy came. Before the struggles and the tension came, I knew these people so I could go to them and say, why does white privilege offend white people? Talk to me. Because I, I thought it's a, it's looking at a system, not an individual. I didn't. And so when my wife or when Scott or when somebody's like, oh, well, it sounds like you're telling me I never had to work for what I had. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And I wouldn't know that if I didn't have a diverse relationship. OK, boom, flip it around. Before you say Black Lives Matter is this or negative or that, have you ever asked me why, why we say that? And, and then as a Christian, how can you align yourself with that? Mean? Well, how can you align yourself with Trump or Biden or anybody for that matter without saying, I, I mean, the things that are godly and biblical, <laughs> right? But when I say Black Lives Matter, it's, well, have you seen their website? Well, have you seen the presidential candidates at all? Like, they all got jacked up stuff, right? So I ain't, but see, culture says you can align yourself being Republican or Democrat, and we know as a Christian, you just mean the Christian things about each party. But do you understand what the meaning of Black Lives Matter is? So, like, I'm just saying, like, when we when we pursue these relationships, pursue the relationship, not just the conversation, because people are starting to um, pursue black people to go back and tell their pastor, hey, Matt, I went and had that tough conversation with a black person and he didn't receive me. Well, because you didn't even get to know him and actually want the relationship. So I just wanted to say, you know, there's a there's a balance of what we're doing right here. I can't just do with somebody that just walks up off the street and trying to have that conversation with me. I think where real change is going to happen is slow and is in relationship. I think right now everybody is looking for what's the program or the thing that I can do that makes me feel like I'm doing something. 
Um, and I get that. I mean, on the one hand, I think that that's a good impulse. I want to do something. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the real change, like the real change that we want to see happen is not going to happen because you implemented a program or a, or a system or a strategy. Like it's going to be, man, I've got, I've got real friends who, for whom this is a real issue and I am learning actively and changing slowly by God's grace. Um, you know, in our church, and I, I, it's, I, that's what I'm trying to do just in the context of relationship. I'm trying to say, Hey, you know, I'll just be real honest and this may get me in trouble, but I think, I think at times like people don't look at my children and see minorities. They just look at them and see Scott and Jesse's kids. And I think you and I were talking about that the other day. And I said, man, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and your heart behind that is you just love my family for being my family, but I'm going to have to have some conversations with my kids that you're not going to have. Um, and I, I think, like, having those kinds of conversations with folks, like, I think that's where real change starts to take place, and that's just, it's a slower, longer game, if I can say it that way. Um, and it doesn't feel as good on the front end because you, you don't feel like you're making as much progress as yes. fast as you'd like to make yes. it. Um, but I think that kind of progress is the progress that actually changes things. Well, well, and so much of this is just willing to embrace awkward conversations, willing to embrace awkward circumstances and just say, look, like I get that I'm ignorant in, about some things. I need some help thinking through some things. I, you know, there's going to be two steps forward and a step backward and, and people aren't going to get it right. And people are going to say things that are like, man, I wish I would have said that differently or said that in a, in a, in a better way or, or whatever. And man, we just got to extend grace, especially for those who are trying. I mean, at least if they're trying to have the conversation, you know, yeah. And, and being humble enough to say, I, I probably have some room to grow myself. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm open to change and correction and, and all of those sorts of things rather than, everything I've ever been taught is right. And I'm never going to change my thoughts or my views on that. And that takes, especially on this topic, a, a deep level of humility. For all of us. Well, and I, I, I do think that there is a measure of like, I do want to put resources in the hands of my people and, and, and myself. Like I do want to put resources out there. Um, conversations like this, hopefully model like, Hey, you can have this same conversation with your neighbor across the street, like right, right, right. sit down at the dinner table and just say, Hey, I was watching this thing and they were talking about some of this stuff. Would you, would you be willing to sit down? Can we, can we talk through some of this together? And, but in the context of relationship and, and so things like this are a helpful resource, I think to put in hands of people or hopefully you're modeling it. Well, I love what you just said. I, I don't know of any black brothers and sisters in my neighborhood. If they are there, I don't know. I live in kind of a smaller neighborhood here in Avon, but I keep thinking if you're in a neighborhood and you know, some instead of avoiding them, because you don't know how to connect with them, Grill out one night. Just say, hey, we're going to be making burgers tomorrow night. You want to come over, love to give you a burger. And you might be fine. They don't say yes the first time. By the way, if you're a family watching this, do the same thing with a white neighbor. You might find they say no the first 25 times you ask. But I think part of it is like we got to get over the no factor. Like We got to get over being offended that somebody doesn't come the first time. It's okay. Which, um, would you got? Would you agree, um, Matt, I think uh, if a, if a a people group is oppressed and, and we're agreeing that this people group are hurt. Um, 
would it be a good space, as uh, Bush, uh, a former president, said, it's not the season to lecture, uh, but the season to listen and learn, um, and, and then get to a space of, of brokenness, especially for believers. I think uh, if, if, if a white family in my neighborhood invited me over and they, they, they said to, looked at me and said, listen, I don't understand what it is to be black, and, and all of that, but but I want to learn. I want to listen. I, I want to step into step into your space for a minute, uh, without trying to lecture. Um, I think that's the, that's the struggle I'm having now. I I can't find a consistency in relationships with white folk that won't jump to the space of not wanting to be ignorant. Like they, they just they just got to at some point try to speak into something. And, and so I've had conversations where I always lead in, Do did you know? I always say, did you know? Did you know? And, I, and I'm talking about the black history that you never had to learn. Did you know? You know, uh, um, did you know this? And did you know this when GIs came back from fighting the Vietnam War? They didn't have the GI Bill because it wasn't for black folks, so they couldn't move in the area. Did you know about redlining? No. Did you know about this? Did you know about that? And And they don't. And then they'll say, but. And it's just like, it's like, you didn't even hear nothing I just said. And so I think that's one of the things, too, for our audience that's listening. If you're a white person and you're really concerned about family, friends, and neighbors, could you just take a moment and just say, I'm not going to lecture. I'm not going to even give my opinion. Um, I want I want to hear. I want to learn. I want to listen so I can get to a place of brokenness and lament and then I can love you. I, I think it's impossible to love somebody who you don't know. You, you cannot love me if you if you are not willing to listen and learn. And you can't love me. How could you love somebody you're not even willing to listen to? And so we're throwing this out here. Just love. Just love your neighbors. Love, But you don't know the black experience to be loving because you never had to. And that's systemic, right? And so I think that's, if our folk who are listening, I think that's a great space to build relationship with black folk who you're saying, the reason why I want to do it is because I see that it's something wrong in our country. And maybe if I just took a moment and paused and listened and learned about the black experience of what it's like to be black as a Christian, that, that might change something going on inside of me that that's a great starting block for me to make some real change. I, I'm going to close up our time. So there's so much more we could say. Um, you guys have a certain Bible passage that just really jumps out at you that you're like, I wish people who are watching and listening would really pray about, consider this. The one that comes to mind for me, and it goes to what you just said in a row, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Some translations say grieve with those who grieve. Uh, the whole idea is to realize that some people in our country right now are experiencing profound hurt, pain, even um, some of my friends have told me about, you know, when they see a police light come on, the terror that comes over them, the fear that comes over them. And as Rashad, you said earlier, and I can't remember if we had the camera on, but I think we did. Um, that doesn't mean that our police officer brothers and sisters aren't also experiencing fear when they go to work every day. So we celebrate with those who are celebrating and we agree with those who are grieving, right? That's just what we do. But Christian, you're allowed to put aside your opinion to mourn with somebody who's mourning. You're allowed to do that. Not only are you allowed to do that, you are encouraged by the scriptures to do that. That's an imperative. You're commanded yeah. 
That'd be my that'd be the Bible verse that I would throw out there. What about you guys? You got a Bible verse? I'll start real quick so I can get on out the way before Rashad start talking because he <laughs> he's sharp and I'm a, I'm gonna end up piggybacking it's off of him father, anyway. I'm gonna piggyback off of him anyway. I'm gonna end up piggybacking off of Rashad anyway. So let me go ahead and get it in there. Uh, now mine is Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man be in Christ, since you are in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Whatever, and behold. Behold, look, all things have become new. And it, it is not something made better. It is something that never existed before. And that's the passage. That's the text. That's the language, right? So if any man be in Christ, you're born again. The God, this is what the gospel does. And, and that passage to me gives me hope when I feel hopeless. Because if, if that person comes in contact with Jesus, then now the barriers are broke down. Uh, they become Christian first and their identity is found in Christ first. And then we should be able to come together um, around biblical things. It, it may be things I don't understand, but biblical things. So if any man be in Christ, he new creation, old things have passed. Hey, behold, all things have become new. There's so many good ones, but I, I go to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, 20 and 21, uh, because I think it's directive for all of us. You know, as I said earlier, the book of Ephesians is all about this uh, diversely organized church. Uh, where Paul spent the, the majority, more, more time than any other church uh, that he planted. He spent the majority of his, his ministry there. And, uh, and so he's trying to instruct this church. Um, and he says there, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And so what is that immeasurably more that he's talking about? He's talking about that wall of hostility between racial and ethnic lines. And so, of course, he's once again, he's talking about reconciling us to God, but he's talking about reconciling us to each other. And so he's saying in this moment, this is immeasurably more than you can think or imagine, but he can do it. And and it happens through the church. Yeah. So I'm going to confess my own sin for a minute. Uh, <laughs> I've only heard that verse used in the context of the next big thing, whatever church is going to take on next. It's the next building program, the next mission, the next program, the next blah, 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 the next. And you're absolutely right, brother. You just exeded, exegeted that text exactly as Jesus meant it. And that was a good word for me. Thank you. And I want to say, man, thank you, Matt, just for the level of humility. I mean, people are seeing this and hearing this. And it's like you're demonstrating what it's like. I, I'm, I'm at this church. It's, it's big. I'm the senior pastor, and I'm ignorant about this. They just helped me. Like, can we get to? Can we all get to that space? You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. Can we just get to that space? You don't have to know everything. You don't know. Right, you don't know, and that's the that's the experience of relationships. Tim speaking life into into that passage, um, and, and saying, "This look, look at that." And you're wow. I've always talked about the next big thing, but that's really I should have been leaning into. You see, that's that's just powerful in that moment. I just don't want folk to to miss that moment. You got to do it. We got these little churches. It ain't about numerical peace. We all big in God's sight because I'm actually all King's Way people are my people now because me and him cool. So I really got to make a church. <laughs> so all y'all all y'all people are actually my people. So if they go over to King's Way, they really just went back to new living. If they go over to the Rock, or they go over to City Church. Listen, we got a multi-site going away. We all really, since he got the bigger church, we all little King's Way. That's just just going on right here. So our pastor just got through. Did I prophetically speak right there? Okay, I'll just... <laughs> 
Man, I there's so many. Uh, I think I think a passage that I have come back to a lot here recently. Um, if you'll forgive the analogy, I've been going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan quite a bit, um, and the idea that real compassion is moved to action. Um, everybody saw the same thing. Everybody walking by probably said, man, it really, that's awful that what happened to that guy. Um, but only one guy saw it and was willing to do anything about it. Um, and so that's Luke 10. That's the passage I keep going back to about, all right, so Lord, I don't want to just see things and be grieved, although it's right to see things and be grieved. Um, but I want to experience compassion that leads to action. And so I would encourage believers, um, whether it's this issue or others, man, when you see those things, um, how, how is God calling you to act in response to that? Um, you know, I, yeah, yeah, real compassion moves to action. And so, um, and I just, I, I, I mean, I, again, I've just been circling the, 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 the thought, the, the chewing on this thought of, like, I don't want to be quick to action, but at the same time, I don't want that to turn to apathy, where I just excuse inaction as I'm trying to be thoughtful. Um, and that's a, that's a difficult line to walk. Of, I don't want to rush in and just make myself feel better because I'm doing something, but I also don't want to just sit back and do nothing and say, man, good luck with that. God bless you guys. I hope, I hope the Lord, you know, grants you favor. Um, and so my, my urging would be for believers, man, um, as you think through these issues, um, how is God calling you to act? So I'm going to do the remix on PT real quick. <laughs> he was in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? I'm going to go a little bit before him. Um, same chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, just because, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff on my heart, but that since he brought that up. Um, Paul says in that context, um, the love of Christ controls us. And, and since we've kind of covered every other thing, like I want to speak to the not just your congregation, but our congregations, and not just white people, but black people, um, Christians, the love of Christ controls us. Um, one thing that's been difficult for me that I praise God for this space, I've been a lot more vocal in this space because I feel a lot more free, right? Um, most people who see me on Facebook or who see me out in public, like, I'm a very trying to bring everything in here Right. But I've been allowed to just kind of be free. I don't get a lot of this freedom. But but it's not because I'm um, old 14 year old Rashad. It's because the love of Christ controls me. So my approach, even when I'm correcting, rebuking, receiving or any of it, is that the love of Christ controls me and the white brother or sister who may even be hurting me. I no longer see according to the flesh It's right there in that same text. Right. And so even if you're listening to this now or watching this and you don't agree with PT, you don't agree with me. You don't agree with these brothers. Maybe you feel like the white people in the room should have stood up a little bit more for white people, whatever. Like, all right, just fall back. 
and just fall on that verse and, and start using it as a filter. In your response to what you just heard of real experiences, real pain, real sorrow, and real hopelessness outside of Jesus Christ, can you just filter your thoughts, your Facebook posting, your speech, before you think about leaving the church or anything? Can you just say, is the love of Christ controlling me? Or is it my opinion, my views, my idols, my whatever? And and if you can say that honestly and walk away from this still feeling how you feel in, in a negative response to like racism and all, then I, that's between you and God. That's between you and God and do what you have to do. But if I really think if you take that step going forward that, hey, before I, before I repost this, before I comment on that, before I gossip about pastor, you know, before I gossip about pastor, about what he just did, before I talk about these other pastors, before I do any of that, is any of it the love of Christ controlling me or is it me controlling me? And I think more often than not, on all sides of the spectrum, we will find that we are controlling, we're our own lords. We're no longer surrendering to the love of Christ controlling us. And so I say that because I know people are watching me, watching Pastor Taylor, we're passionate and all that, and yet... I will always surrender even the things I'm passionate about here on earth for the love of Christ controlling me. That's a good word to close on. Um, that was our entire sermon series in August was what's compelling us. And it was all about that passage. Christ's love compels me. That's what it's all about. Um, guys, I love you. And uh, I hope this isn't the last time we do something like this. We joked, um, so those of you watching this, about maybe joining together on a series around what does it mean to love our neighbors? We love ourselves next year. Let's have that conversation. I don't know what that would look like, but I'd love to see this community transformed by us and the way we love each other. So if you guys don't mind, I'll pray real quick and then we'll close out. Heavenly Father, I don't even know if anybody's going to tune in for this prayer, but I know you are. So God, you're here with us right now because there's two or more gathered in your name. And in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, we claim um, claim your promises over us. We claim your identity over us. We claim, Father, that it is not the color of our skin or our hair or our language or our originating country. Father, it is the name of Jesus that transforms us. It's the name of Jesus that brings us into union with you and with each other. And that one day our names uh, not only will be, but are written, are written in heaven right now, Father. And that um, I'm going to stand with these brothers in heaven and their churches. And we're going to stand arm in arm and sing all kinds of songs to you. And there's not going to be a little place in heaven where each of our churches are broken off. Um, they're already all many in churches anyway, Father. And uh, I just thank you, God. Yes, for these- <laughs> thank you, Father, for these men. I thank you for their church. I thank you for their people. God, I pray protection over each of these men. I pray protection over Kingsway. God, we have to talk about this. We have to deal with it. And we pray for the unity of the body. Father, may the remnant stand up in this day in the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.